Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we watched The Matrix Resurrections, directed by Lana Wachowski, who co-wrote the screenplay with David Mitchell and Alexander Hemon. Taking place decades after the original trilogy, Keanu Reeves' character Neo is back inside a new version of The Matrix, living as Thomas Anderson. Now in his 50s, he's a successful video game designer, famous for creating a game called The Matrix, kickstarting a meta-story about the film's role as a sequel. So this is a very exciting new film. I am a long-time and passionate fan of the Wachowskis, my problematic faves of the Hollywood blockbuster landscape. <laughs> and this is just like a really interesting installment in our current era of like perpetual reboots and sequels. There's a lot to talk about. We're going to kind of discuss all of the different allegorical themes of this movie and the very cool casting and the way it kind of fits in with other recent sequels and how the Wachowskis have developed and all that sort of thing. Uh, But yeah, Morgan, I think we both just really enjoyed this very entertaining and charming movie. Yeah, I am a much less diehard Wachowski fan than you, though I have seen most of their movies, I think. I've not seen the two. Yeah, I mean, there's not like a huge number, you know, there's like, there's a handful plus Sense8, which like only true heads (laughs) are going for Sense8. (laughs) That I have not seen. I also have not seen the two Matrix sequels. So I've seen the first one and I read like an explainer before watching (laughs) this, which I don't think was really necessary because the movie doesn't get too bogged down in world building stuff and then in the parts where it does I was like well I, I just don't understand what's happening so <laughs> but um I really really liked this it made me feel not exactly optimistic for the future of cinema because it felt kind of like a pyrrhic victory over like the studio and we'll talk about the sort of meta quality of what's going on but there's literally a joke at Warner Brothers expense like by name in this and I was like did she have final cut like how did this happen (laughs) I mean the fact that she said in interviews that Warner Brothers was literally going and asking every year like clockwork will you make another Matrix movie makes so much sense because there's just been like years and years where the Wachowskis now Wachowski singular because Lily is kind of taking a break but um for years and years they like kept coming back and making movies like Jupiter Ascending it's like clearly you know, people who are in the top tiers of Hollywood understand that these directors are very practiced and sometimes very lucrative, depending on how those movies are marketed. Of course you want another Matrix sequel. And finally it happened. And the reason why is because the Wachowski's parents died in quick succession and so did a close friend of Lana Wachowski and it kind of kickstarted her creative process. Um, Obviously there's been like many attempts to revive this franchise like over the past 15 years, some of which were with other people um, with no Wachowski involvement, which obviously would have gone down like a lead balloon. But this time around, like in 2019, Lana kind of started work on this new film and also brought in David Mitchell and and Alexander Hemon, who are better known as, in David Mitchell's case, a novelist. He wrote the book Cloud Atlas, which was made into a movie by the Wachowskis. And then um, Alexander, who has written various kind of nonfiction and fiction prose works. Um, But they both worked with the Wachowskis on sense which is kind of how they got grandfathered into this project. And there's a lot of sense in this movie. Also, aesthetically, the cinematographer John Toll worked on both projects. And kind of one of the first things that you noticed when the trailer came out for this is that it really kind of departs from the cyberpunk aesthetic of the original movies. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff that takes place inside the real world um, being the stuff that looks like the real world in these movies is the Matrix and the stuff that's like in the robot world is the quote unquote real world. But it's like that stuff still looks the same. There's loads of sort of green digital text and sort of robots and CGI stuff that doesn't actually look that good. But in the stuff that's in the Matrix that looks like reality, the story kind of largely takes place in San Francisco because Neo's character, Thomas Anderson, is a video game developer. So you've got all these like beautiful sort of outside landscapes and cityscapes and sunsets which is very much kind of in keeping with stuff like Jupiter Ascending and Sensei and the colour scheme looks really different and so you immediately know that this is in a new era. I think this feels 
like a real evolution, which is something you can't really say of like the vast majority of recent blockbuster reboot type things. Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that the movie is so consciously in conversation with that cultural phenomenon, I mean, the first third of the movie, so Jonathan Groff plays Thomas Anderson, i.e. Neo's boss at this video game company, like the corporate, you know, overlord to his sort of creative visionary. And right at the beginning, he literally is like, you know, Warner Brothers is forcing us to make a sequel. And they said that if we don't do it, they're just going to do it anyway. So I guess we're just going to have to make one, which is the most direct. It's so transparently the artist saying, like, this is why this piece of art is being constructed. The people with the money are forcing me to do this. Like, It's kind of shocking. It's incredible. It reminded me so much of... This is a deep cut, but I highly recommend it to people who have literally not seen a single other movie in the franchise. But um, in the Nightmare in Elm Street franchise, the seventh installment is called Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Wes Craven being the director who masterminded this horror franchise. And it's literally this movie because the concept is that like the main character from the movies um, is like the actress who plays her. And the villain from these horror movies comes into the real world. And the whole movie is kind of a discussion about the concept of doing a new reboot of Nightmare on Elm Street, starring the director and with like the studio and all this stuff. And I was watching this film and I was like, holy shit, it's like the Wachowski's new nightmare. (laughs) Yeah, they've probably seen it. Or Lana, I'm sure. But the first third of the movie then is kind of taken up primarily in the Matrix, you know, in quotes, which is what looks like normal life at this video game studio where they're trying to come up with like new ideas for a sequel. And... Meanwhile, Thomas slash Neo is sort of disassociating and losing his grip on reality a little bit because he sort of can't remember whether The Matrix, which is his video game, is real or not. So you have this sense of the film commenting on itself and on reboots in general in a way that is so clever and inventive and also kind of like snarky and really funny in a way that I don't really associate with the Wachowskis, who I think of as incredibly sincere filmmakers, which isn't to say that they don't have humor in their other work. They definitely do. But this is really funny. Like this movie is extremely funny. And I don't know whether that was just that Lana Wachowski was like, in a fuck it kind of mood or that the other writers brought a different sensibility and like, uh, who knows. But it has a both a lightness and a kind of biting quality to the humor, especially in that first third, which I think is the best part of the movie. Yeah, I agree. That was pretty electrifying and is cannot be more different than any other film <laughs> attempting to do this. And there are parts of the movie that I think do get kind of bogged down in being the thing that the first third is commenting on. Like it kind of turns into that like reboot of the Matrix in ways that are a little bit more boring, but when it's doing the more meta thing, like, that could feel really obnoxious, but in practice, it's just exciting because it feels so different from all these other boring pieces of shit that Hollywood (laughs) is putting out right now. I mean, the casting is so fantastic because, like, they have this gift, right, in Keanu Reeves because Keanu Reeves could be behaving in any way and we would still accept him as Neo because like he is Neo, it's his most iconic role. And they've brought him in, it's like he genuinely feels much older. Like he feels like he's developed significantly since the previous films. And obviously like the latter two films in the franchise are setting him up as this sort of messianic figure. And he's completely forgotten that within this narrative. Like he's living in the real world. He thinks he's this lonely, single guy in his 50s who made this video game which loads of other people idolise but the film makes it really clear that there's no one around him who understands him on a deep level and his closest relationship is with his therapist and it just like it's such a great setup because it makes you like so much more invested in the romance with him and Trinity played by Carrie Ann Moss which is like the the cornerstone of this movie is like just getting super invested in the two of these being soulmates and you're just like immediately it works and it's because just the way that Lana films them, you know, like they have this like really intense sensual handshake when they meet for the first time in a coffee shop and you're like, yeah, I'm done. I'm fully invested in these two. (laughs) Well, I think everything you're saying gets to the movie, part of what makes the movie so successful, which is that it just feels so much more personal than 
most blockbuster movies. And sometimes that's fine. Like, sometimes you get a big action movie that doesn't, like, maybe it's personal in a way that we just can't perceive, but that's not mm-hmm. really how it's being read. And then a lot of the other stuff just doesn't feel personal at all. Like, it's clearly kind of an assembly line thing. And so much of the stuff going on with Neo in this movie is clearly a sort of transposed version of Lana Wachowski's own experience as one of the people responsible for creating the Matrix, which became this massive cultural like phenomenon in ways that were often quite poisonous. So Thomas's assistant in this movie is this just like sniveling, obnoxious man who is a huge fan of the Matrix, the game in the movie, and is also like, again, very masculine in the sense that he's just kind of gross and toxic. And you could see Thomas just being like, why do I have to put up with this person? Like, this is such a misinterpretation of like anything that I've ever done. And he doesn't really engage with it, but you can just tell he's from just the performance exhausted. that he's just like, God. He's exhausted and depressed. Right. And then there are other instances where people just being like, oh my God, like I'm such a huge fan. And that's very dehumanizing, right? Which also ties into the concept of like being the one, right? Like that's just so, like that's not a human thing. And it felt so obvious to me that this was not subtly (laughs) just her commenting on like, yeah, this was what it was like to be like observing and receiving all of this kind of like obsessive fandom adoration for this thing that like to them was just the movie that they made and then metastasized into this phenomenon that became again this right wing thing on the internet and then this other stuff. And there are a couple of moments where they're all sort of jumping around talking about what the new Matrix could be. Perfect montage. Perhaps the best montage of the year. (laughs) Yeah. Well, because someone's like, oh, like it's a trans allegory and someone else is like, no, it's this and no, it's that. And I thought the inclusion of the trans allegory line was really interesting because that is, of course, a reading that has gained a huge amount of prominence in the past 10 years. And we discussed it on our episode on the first Matrix movie. And like, I think there's a lot of weight to that. But one of the things I think this movie does is not to say that like, that's the wrong in quotes interpretation, but to push back against any like definitive interpretation of that movie or the series in general, right? Like, I really think she doesn't want there to be, like, one allegorical reading of The Matrix that is, like, the explanation. Like, they're too complicated and weird Mm -hmm. for there to be, like, a key that unlocks the whole thing, which doesn't mean that there aren't lots of thematic things going on or that, like, you can't read it that way and, like, get satisfaction and pleasure from that. But, like, I don't think it's, like, there's a secret thing that you can just, again, plug in and, like, the whole thing falls apart because it's, like, falls apart in a positive sense because you've, like, figured it out. Which I found really thrilling because it's more, like, that's just more intellectually interesting to me, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, it's the opposite of kind of the way that so many current sci-fi movies and blockbusters are fully kind of engaged with by the fan base in terms of explaining stuff in a really prescriptive way. I also really love that first section just in the context of, like, gamer culture. Obviously, the Wachowskis absolutely hugely loved video games, loved anime, It was kind of interesting and surprising. There were very few obvious anime influences in this movie. Like the aesthetic of the original Matrix film, as we discussed in our Matrix episode, is like very, very direct anime influences to the point of like copying certain scenes from Ghost in the Shell and that sort of thing. That wasn't really present here. And in this film also, there was a lot more emphasis on the kind of gaming stuff much more explicitly, which is kind of amusing in the context of Lana Wachowski having lived in the Bay Area for years now. So simultaneously is like very engaged with the city of San Francisco, like as a queer hub, which is a kind of central element of Sensei. Like the trans character from Sensei comes from San Francisco and there's loads of scenes there as there is in this. And also, of course, that's a place where there's just like a million video game developers and asshole tech people who I'm sure she has interacted with a great deal because they probably want to ask her if like the simulation's real. (laughs) And so like, it feels like there's a a real cynicism aimed at the concept of gaming, which wasn't present in the original films because obviously kind of the concept in the most surface level reading of The Matrix is it's people who are hacking what is effectively a role-playing game in order to gain more freedom. And it comes from that era where there was more acceptance 
of just the concept of like creating that sort of flexibility for yourself. Whereas now the dominant force in gamer culture is more to do with being fully engaged with the producers, like the big studios who are making these AAA games that are like extremely rigid and conservative politically and creatively. And that's the setting that she's put Neo in here. Because like he is now working for what is clearly one of these AAA companies as someone who's come up through Gen X and originally made something that was really creative. And now they're trying to commercialize that. And the concept of hacking that is being completely removed. And you have to bring in like these new characters to free him, which is where this movie's new characters come in. Like the the big two are Bugs, who is the sort of viewpoint character coming from outside the Matrix, who's played by Jessica Henwick, wonderful up and coming actress. I kind of felt like Bugs, her characterization was like very thin, but it sort of didn't matter because it's a really charming actress and her job is to be the audience point of view. And then you have Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, who is playing um, the new Morpheus. And oh my God, he's so fucking good. Incredible new Morpheus. I was like in love with this man. (laughs) Yeah, well, I have stuff to say about him in particular in a second. But also just to the video game point, like that also all applies to studio filmmaking. Yes. Right? Absolutely. Which isn't to say that like, obviously indie film was happening in the 90s and is still happening. And that's where almost all the interesting stuff is going on right now. But... Like, the Wachowskis came up and have made basically all their movies, if not all, in the studio system. And, like, that's that was a way for, ex- like, exciting new creative people to get in and do, like, exciting original stuff when they were young. And now there's no creative flexibility. And the only way to get that is to be like, okay, fine, I will do a sequel to The Matrix again. (laughs) And then, like, go around, pacing around in these meetings, being like, what's the new theme to the thing, right? (laughs) Like, so, um, I think it kind of applies to both. In terms of the new cast, I totally agree that Bug is pretty underwritten, but I also agree that the actress is very, like, she just has a great screen presence, so you're sort of like, well, whatever. The first, like, long scene of the movie is her... And Yaya Abdul-Mateen II. And they're both very good. But I was kind of like, where's Keanu? Where's Keanu? Like, get me to Keanu. Which, like, I get that they're withholding him a little bit. Like, a, you know, speaking of Shakespeare plays where you don't meet the hero for a while. But it did feel like it was going on a little bit. But um, I think he, in particular, is really, really great in this movie. Um, Which was really exciting to me. Because I've seen him in a couple things. I saw him, obviously, in Watchmen. He won the Emmy for that. And then he was in... Trial of Chicago 7 as well. Yeah, and his other big movie this year was Candyman, which I've not watched. But yeah. like, he is extra- his career is like shooting up, as is uh, Jessica Henwick's. Yes, and I thought he was like perfectly good in both the things I've seen him in, but I thought the Emmy one was actually a little bit odd for Watchmen, not because he was in any way bad, but just like that performance and that role I didn't think were the most interesting on that show, because yeah. the whole point is that he's very like restrained, right? And kind of one note. And he is unbelievably charismatic in a like thrilling way in this in a pretty small role like he's not actually in it that much but he pops so much and I could kind of just see I mean again who the fuck knows what movies are going to be in the next like five years but I was like this man should be a star like which seems like it's happening so I've you know fingers crossed that he gets to be this charismatic and stuff because I mean you've got the combo of a really brightly colored costume which cannot be undersold. (laughs) Very important element. And the fact that he is just making up a really fun character because he's not playing anything recognisable. He is completely different from Morpheus. So the concept of his role is that um, the first scene he has with Jessica Henwick, she is sort of a familiar type of character because she's someone who's come from within the rebellion, like people who are hacking their way into the Matrix. And she's looking for Neo and hoping to like, refree him because like decades have passed and they want to find him again and this new Morpheus character initially is an agent and he's just this like fictional program that has existed within this section of the Matrix and he's developed sentience and is also a new version of like the real human person who was Morpheus so it's like there's really very little resemblance between him and the original character And it really works because there's no room for that character in this story anymore. Because if you have Neo as this person who's like 
in his 50s like he's already been through his original hero's journey there's no need for him to have that kind of mentor figure he needs to figure out himself emotionally which is why the character he mostly bounces off of is his therapist in this film uh who we will discuss in a minute because it's a very key role so instead you've just got this morpheus who's this sort of freewheeling entity who is just all about this fun physicality and this charm and he feels very kind of musical theater partly because of the costumes but partly because of the just the he seems like he's having loads of fun just existing which is very different from being like a revolutionary leader which is what the original morpheus was well again back to watchmen like that character is so like he barely moves right like he's so restrained he's always also playing regina king's husband but that part of the character doesn't get a ton of screen time and what i was so taken with in this and again he's really not in the movie very much but you just like the physical fluidity of the performance when he's kind of just like wobbling around but obviously totally controlled like was so magnetic to me and i think you're completely right about the fun like, I felt like the actor was just having an absolute ball doing this. Yeah. And then that translates to the character is clearly having a great time, too. And that sense, I mean, that sense of just, like, everyone enjoying themselves so much really pervades the whole movie. Like, this feels like something that everyone loved doing. But a lot of the characters have to be depressed. So, you know, they don't get to, like, <laughs> physically express that. Whereas this guy gets to just be like, I'm in the Matrix movie. Like, this is so cool. So, like, what, what do you know about Lana Wachowski's kind of creative process well i read the article that you sent me <laughs> with an interview with jonathan graff which i thought was totally fascinating but why don't you describe it yeah the wachowskis have always been sort of very holistic in the original matrix movie there's all these stories about keanu reeves and the others being given all these kind of philosophical textbooks to read as the background of their work but um in the more recent years, the Wachowskis are a lot more kind of emotion-based storytellers. And with this film, like the interview we read with Jonathan Groff, which we will link to in the show notes, he's kind of talking about how Lana will be hosting a party every week and she wants everyone to be really personally engaged and we'll be having drum circles. And I was just like, of course, <laughs> of course you're having drum circles. <laughs> well, he also said, which I thought was really interesting, more in terms of like actually how the film is constructed that like she explained to him that before she transitioned, she, and I assume both of them were like really rigidly storyboarding every single thing because as she described it, like she just had this unbelievable sense of internal control. Right. And so that control then was externalized through the movie making process. And like everything had to be planned so rigidly in advance, which is definitely a sense that you get, not in a bad way, but like it's clear that the original Matrix, for instance, has been storyboarded completely. Yeah. I mean, it's beforehand. an extremely different form of action. Like the anime focused, very choreographed action of the first film is just not present in this movie at all. Like the action scenes in this often aren't even that good, but it also kind of yeah. doesn't matter because that's not what you're here for. <laughs> well, I was looking at like the people I follow on Letterboxd and looking at their reviews and the um, New York Times opinion columnist Jamel Bowie, who has a great Letterboxd, had reviewed this and what he said, and I was like, oh, you're totally right. I hadn't quite put this together in my head. Was it like the one-on-one -on -one combat scenes are great and then mm -hmm. the bigger like group stuff is yeah. much less good. And I was like, yep, that's correct because <laughs> it, it's just visually kind of messy when there's like a bunch of people fighting and the camera just kind of jumps around a lot whereas when it's just two people having like hand-to-hand -hand combat that sense of yeah like because it's all about relationships is, right because like yeah. it, it's like partly just the priorities have very much changed since that first movie also the fight choreographer from the first film was no longer involved and all of the stuff when they are in Io, which is the city of the kind of rebels outside the Matrix, is just this sort of the main part of this movie that just felt like absolute kind of Hollywood generic because it was murky CGI, like blurry, whatever. And I was just like, you know what? Fuck it. I can just tune this section out. This is also a section where they bring back Jada Pinkett Smith's character, Niobe, who is admittedly a key character in both of the Matrix sequels, but also while I applaud retaining your actors forever, there's like seven different sensate cameos in this this movie, which I really appreciated. But it's like, you didn't necessarily need to rehire Jada. If you didn't rehire the original Morpheus, you could have hired a real old lady to play Niobe <laughs> because they've covered Jada Pinkett Smith in this extremely unconvincing old age makeup. And like, I know old age makeup is often not easy to do, but I watched the Grand Budapest Hotel the other day and I just kept thinking, Tilda Swinton's makeup in this is very convincing and Jada's makeup was the pit. 
pits. <laughs> uh, yeah, that is. I also rewatched Grand Budapest recently, and she truly looks like an old lady in yeah. that. And this, is... and also Jada's like old lady performance is very amdram. <laughs> <laughs> it's not great. I mean, so what I think really doesn't work about this movie, which broadly speaking, I loved. I think it's kind of like a mess, but in a way where you're like, well, whatever. It's the classic Wachowski quality. <laughs> Correct. Everything on IO or like when they're outside of the Matrix, basically, I think it's just like bad, just straight up, not good. Yeah. And I'm sure part of that was informed by the fact that I haven't seen the sequel. So like, again, I did read the explainer and so understood that there was like a machine war, which is not part of the first movie at all. But this is the part I was referencing earlier that like feels like the manifestation of the thing the movie's kind of trying not to be or is trying to sort of comment on, which is like, this just feels like a reboot or sequel of those earlier movies as opposed to something more interesting. Like, it's just all this world building shit and it looks really bad. And there's poor Jada Pinkett Smith just has like five minutes of straight exposition. And I was like... <laughs> We She's just, walking we around just don't and I'm care. like, this is the point where if you're watching this in theaters, you can just like go to the bathroom. Um, yeah. There's also this role for Priyanka Chopra Jonas, which you could excise this entire role from the film and it would be fine. She is just there to do this, like, as you said, big exposition thing where she's talking about some sort of heist. Much as I personally love a heist, I do not even recall what the fuck was going on there. I was just like, Priyanka can leave. Well, so they get, I mean, we're obviously just spoiling this whole movie. Like, they get Neo out, like, halfway through the film. Yeah. And then they have, he's, like, insistent that they go back and get Trinity as well, who still yeah. doesn't know that any of the past stuff has happened. And also, part of the reason why this middle section is so frustrating is because Carrie Ann Moss has such an incredible screen presence, and you're so invested by this point in Neo and Trinity's relationship. They have, like, 45 minutes in the middle of the film where there's no Trinity, and I was like, where is Trinity? <laughs> yeah, it's a big problem. And instead, you've got all of this boring crap right and the like incredibly detailed explanation of the mechanics used to get her out i was just like i don't understand <laughs> nor do i care i mean again i've only seen one of the previous films but the how exactly it works that like you can and can't pull someone out of the matrix at certain times i don't i mean it definitely doesn't it. matter because this whole movie hinges upon the fact that both neo and trinity very explicitly die at the end of the third film and this movie is just like oh we put them back together <laughs> Well, right. And then they're like running through the streets being chased near the end. And then at a certain point, they just like unplug them. And I'm like, well, why couldn't you just unplug them earlier? Like, it doesn't, whatever, it's fine. But um, it definitely kind of sags like a lot in the middle third. But even with the stuff that doesn't work, I just felt so warmly toward the movie and everybody involved because the stuff that was good was so good. And we're, there's a lot more for us to talk about, but it just felt so again sincere which of course is the Wachowski's whole thing but we have done an episode on Jupiter Ascending which is a movie we both really like but I think that I think that's basically a good movie but also really silly whereas this I think is a definitely a good movie and even if some parts of it don't work it's quite serious actually in a way that you just don't see with movies like this obviously like there's a lot of very explicit kind of commentary about Neo being in some ways like a reflection of the filmmakers but the fact that he's like an old guy, <laughs> like Keanu Reeves is 57, and that's kind of a whole baked in part of the story makes it just fundamentally so different from something like Jupiter Ascending, which is about like yeah. a perky 27 year old. Yes. Well, I think, I mean, we've mentioned, obviously have mentioned Keanu and mentioned that like he's great in this, or you mentioned that anyway, but I we should get more into the actual like characters yeah. and emotions and performances. We should talk about Neil Patrick Harris and yes. Jonathan Groff. I mean, both of those characters, fascinating new additions to this whole kind of framework of characters that are like within the Matrix. I also, as soon as they showed up, I was like, oh, okay, I'm already like consciously in my mind thinking so much about the way this film has framed the two antagonist roles as clearly rich, successful, confident white gay men. And they're not explicitly gay within the narrative, but you've got two very rare actors who are openly gay within Hollywood and I think that's something that is playing into their roles like they're not they're not to put it bluntly like playing straight that's not like a way that they're like behaving in this movie or they're written and obviously there's a lot of kind of ambiguous queer and trans allegorical stuff going on which we will talk about later in the podcast but that felt like an intentional choice and it's very different from the way 
Agent Smith was framed in the original movies because he was the main antagonist in the first film. And Jonathan Groff's new role as Thomas Anderson's business partner slash boss, he is still technically Agent Smith, but like Morpheus, he's a reboot. And you've changed from it being this sort of men in black government entity to him being this very glossy capitalist, you know, I'm in charge of this media company, very confident and having these conversations with Neo where the whole thing is all about just like overlooking the fact that he's unhappy, which is a classic conversation for anyone to have with their boss. Yes. They also have, like when they start fighting further on in the movie, he's just like hitting on him, which was very funny (laughs) to me. Jonathan Groff is really, really good in this movie. Oh, he's fantastic. I mean, I think he's always great. He's a great and really fun choice. Like there's a lot of fun little acting and casting choices in this movie. And in that interview we were referencing, like, he talked about how unbelievably excited he was to do this because as an out gay actor, like, he never gets offered stuff like this. So it's an interesting two-part equation of what you're saying, right? That both the casting of these very successful white gay male actors has a clear sort of thematic resonance in the film, but also as, like, a labor issue, even if there's a certain level of, like, power and status attached to them within the movie... Also, as a practical matter, like, Jonathan Groff is really successful, but also doesn't get to do action movies because he's a gay man, right? So he was, like, working his ass off at the training because he was like, I'm going to be so fucking good in this movie. (laughs) Yeah, the anecdotes were like, oh, the stuntmen have nicknamed him the Savage because he takes it all really seriously. It's like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But I also just think in terms of the acting, like, he's an unbelievably charming performer and like person clearly i vividly remember seeing him like dash in late at the stage door while waiting to get into hamilton on his bike because he was clearly not for the first time showing up late kind of like a hapless figure it was very funny and that can so easily be sort of turned on a dime to being something toxic right like charm is always sort of like worrying in real people like you're like well that's really nice but also what is this covering up and i think he does a really great job in turning his like natural charisma in this into something like really poisonous but also still fun to watch right but back to keanu i just think he's incredible in this movie i think this is the best he's been in a long time i haven't seen the john wick movies so i mean he's absolutely fantastic in the john wick movies but it's a very different type of performance i think this is a yeah this is a dramatic performance in this movie whereas right. his stuff that john wick is pure action i think he's kind of yeah saving his knee injuries for john wick and in this he's just right. really emoting <laughs> yeah and obviously like part of what makes him such a great star is his effectiveness doing the action stuff but i think he can often be dismissed because people think of him just as an action guy or think of him as just, like, having a flat affect. And obviously there is a truth to some of that. Like, his voice is not... His voice pretty much sounds the same no matter what he's saying. Um, And I think certainly earlier in his career, he sometimes would wind up in things that were bad fits for him and just wind up being bad. Like, we have talked about Bram Stoker's Dracula, in which he is hilariously (laughs) awful. And also Much Ado About Nothing, in which he is also atrocious although in a very funny way that doesn't really impede the movie but i think he at this stage like he so fully understands his own screen presence and obviously the wachowskis have worked with him for so long that like this is they have a real understanding and like it feels like philosophically they're on the same page in terms of they're not telling stories that are really highbrow and complex and hard to understand kind of the whole point of the wachowskis output is that although you can interpret it in many ways, it's extremely mainstream and you can understand it easily. And also the emotional beats are like just so sincere. And that's where Keanu's at too. Yeah. And I think that certainly there was stuff he did earlier in his his career that was really excellent too, but often you would get a kind of like, either he did stuff like Point Break where he's playing kind of an arrogant dummy or Bill and Ted which I think people sometimes forget. Like, I'm not that they forget that movie exists, but, like, that is a pure comic performance. And it's that was hilarious. His breakout, he is hysterical right? in those movies. Also playing an idiot, which we know he isn't, so it's just very funny that that's so much <laughs> of his oeuvre. But what he does in this that, like, I certainly have not seen every Keanu Reeves movie, although I've seen quite a few of them, is play someone who's just, like, really uncertain and clearly having a really hard time. I mean, and it's also is- an extremely rare role for a leading man. 
Yes. Especially someone who has been so closely associated with action movies, right? And I think the age thing is a huge part of that because as these stars age, Hollywood just doesn't like to acknowledge that it's happening. I mean, women don't really get to do it at all. Most actresses just get sort of shuffled off. I mean, I find it extremely fucked up that Harrison Ford is doing another Indiana Jones movie. Like, like there's really no other way to describe that other than fucked up. Like, <laughs> it, it, I'm like worried. Please keep him safe. It concerns me. But a lot of the discourse about Keanu for like years was like, oh my God, like he's barely aged. It just annoys me so much because it's like, I've watched many of his films and he has very clearly aged. Everyone does. He's aged, visibly he has aged in a normal manner for a thin, good-looking man with good skin. And when I was watching this, I was just like, I hope that now people have seen him, like, he shaves off his beard for part of this because he has to come out of the Matrix goop tank. And it's like, when he's shaved off his beard, you can definitely tell this is a man who is nearing 60. We just all love Keanu and find him attractive, which is reasonable and normal because he's a movie star. Like, (laughs) he looks his age. I I think it is, like, it, you, it's easy to forget because with the beard and the long hair and he's doing action movies, like he's, you don't think of him as someone who's 57. Like you said that and I was like, wow, he's 57? Like I hadn't looked up his age recently. But when he shaves the beard off, it's really kind of shocking in this movie because you're like, oh, right. He has like normal sagging skin because he's a human person. Like, you know. And Carrie Ann Moss also has just like a normal face. Mm-hmm. And I found it really, really moving to see them having this romance in this movie because they just looked like actual human people. And the fact that Thomas Anderson is clearly really depressed, the fact that he's visibly middle-aged adds this real valence to that. There's no romance to depression when you're 57, right? Like when it's a 22-year-old, there can be this kind of like, oh, I'm like wallowing in my sadness. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, because it's like the original movie is explicitly, like, it's just the classic Gen X thing where it's like, he's got this steady job in an office and he's like, I hate this. I want to go and hang out in a BDSM club and like be a hacker. And it's like, of course, I'm not dissing that at all. Because like, of course, that's what like a 25 year old like hottie wants to be doing. And the whole narrative (laughs) like fits in with the way counterculture was functioning at that point. And then in this movie, you've got this guy who like, yeah, he's like really rich and loads of people idolize him, but he's completely isolated and all of the people he's interacting with regularly are these Silicon Valley nightmares. And when he meets Trinity again, who in the Matrix is named Tiffany and she's a mom. Like she she works in like a motorcycle place, but like her primary identity that people identify her as is a mom and she has a husband and stuff. Like they have this sudden immediate like soulmate meeting, which is so compelling. And there's this little detail which I loved so much where within the Matrix, although we all see them as like Carrie-Anne Moss and Keanu, in the Matrix they look different. So he's kind of like a more average looking grey haired guy in his 50s and she's kind of like a blonde soccer mom, but we never actually really see what Carrie-Anne looks like to other people. But they've also given her this husband who's named Chad. And I was like, oh, of course his name's Chad, like thinking, oh, what a hilarious meta joke. But the double meta joke is that he's played by Chad Stahelski, who is the original stunt double of Keanu Reeves in the Matrix movies and director of John Wick. <laughs> Lana was like, I've got a great acting role for you. And Chad was like, a what role? <laughs> he's good. He's perfectly reasonable. All he has to do there is stand there and look hunky, which he does. And you're like this bastard. He's he's taken Trinity away. But um, her role there is like she, because the Matrix acts as this metaphor for all oppressive societal systems in various different ways. Within the Matrix, she is a mother And she has this little conversation where she's like, maybe I just became a mother because I thought I had to because I'm a woman. And it's like an interesting little thing. Because the original Trinity, you don't really think of her as a maternal figure. And that's partly because like she's an action hero and like there's certain expectations. But yeah, like you have that thing and like they are the only people who recognize what each other's true identities are and like their true names, which is obviously kind of tying into the whole trans subtext of all these movies. It's just... It's just like a really compelling love story that feels like a real meeting of the minds, you know, while also like she's really hot. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, also like when she, I've, again, I've only seen the first Matrix, but she's such a like badass immediately. 
right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, you're the one, you're the guy. That could easily sort of feel diminishing to the female character that she's just telling the male character that like he's the hero, but she's so impressive instantaneously that you're just really taken with her. And similarly to the Keanu role in this film, like presenting her as someone who's really uncertain and just kind of unhappy with her life feels so different. And she also is fantastic in this movie. So to have these characters who are really iconic in like contemporary American cinema reimagined as these just kind of like uncertain, depressed, middle-aged people. I just, again, was really moved by that. And there's one other big thing in terms of like the action that I'm, we'll talk about at the end that was clearly Lana being like, what do I want to say about that first movie or like the earlier movies now? And how do I want to like readjust that perception and it felt so intentional to me that she was like yeah 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 these guys like can be really cool at the end once they kind of figure it out but we're gonna spend most of the movie with them kind of not having it right like (laughs) even once neo remembers like who he is he's still kind of not neo right until the very end which is just not what you expect from a movie of this type and Back to what I was saying near the beginning, I didn't get to it, about the sort of personal feeling of this. Like, the love story is so unbelievably sincere and really moving, which you don't normally see in these movies, that that also just felt really personal to me. Not in the sense that it's, like, based on Lana Wachowski's real life or whatever, but it clearly just means a lot to her, which you feel watching it, right? Like, this, this is something that she cares about a lot, and that level of just, like, intense emotion you just don't yeah it's just it's just so rare that's why the tv show sensei feels so unique because i think that show is like it's very flawed it kind of took like a full season to really get going but the concept of this show which is on netflix you can watch all 2.5 seasons that they made before deleting it like all good netflix shows (laughs) but the concept is that there's these eight characters who we're all born at the same time and as adults they all gain like a simultaneous psychic connection and they all come from extremely different cultural backgrounds and the story is about them being forced to understand each other's viewpoints and work together to escape from your kind of classical men in black government agents sort of like want to kidnap some super characters type situation. There's definitely the show has like some problems but that emotional core is like so similar to what you were talking about here um, and the show really does come together like toward the end. And uh, as I said, many cameos in there among the, <laughs> among the side characters in this movie. <laughs> All right. Well, let's finally talk about Neil Patrick Harris and then like the actual sort of plot yeah. of the movie um, and what happens in the last third. So why don't you take us away on that? Yeah. So as we've mentioned, Thomas Anderson in his Matrix incarnation, um, he is depressed. He attempted suicide earlier in his life kind of right after the massive success of the original matrix trilogy like he felt isolated and stuff and this is echoing the fact that like within the original trilogy of movies it ends with him and trinity dying like sacrificing themselves so humanity can continue this revolution against the machines and what happened is that neil patrick harris's character is this figure called the analyst who is continuing this tradition from the sequels um, of there being these super intelligent programs that are like personas within the matrix that have a lot of extra controls. So like there was this guy named the architect who was a a key character before. And the analyst is a therapist. Like he is the guy who Neo goes to speak with when he is within the matrix to like talk about his problems. And he literally prescribes him blue pills, the iconic blue pills uh, to remain within the matrix and forget all of the supposed delusions he has about the real world actually being a simulation and like all of this stuff. Cause like he has like these kind of like inevitably blurred boundaries between fantasy and reality. Cause he created this video game based on himself and also about the real world being a simulation. And there's this really interesting article published in Vox by Emily Vanderwerf. And it's a really personal kind of analysis of this therapy concept within the movie because the way it works is like you could definitely have a surface reading of this character played by Neil Patrick Harris where it's just like an extremely cynical and negative portrayal of therapy because like he is literally and very directly manipulating Neil by like gaslighting him into thinking that his hallucinations are hallucinations rather than being real and um, is using these kind of 
cognitive techniques to like fuck him up intentionally in a Hannibal style way. But at the same time, uh, it's pretty clear that like Lana Wachowski has gone through a lot of therapy and um, is very like in touch with her feelings and is not like making an anti-therapy narrative. I think that would be a very uncharitable interpretation of what this story is. So instead, I mean, there's a lot of nuance going there, but like we will link to this article in the show notes. It's kind of talking about just the ways in which different parts of this story kind of mirror the way that like real life trauma therapy functions because you see kind of basic stuff like Neo is avoiding triggers like he's he's trying to handle like various trauma triggers by like accepting his surroundings which of course are fake and also he's having these like therapy sessions one-on-one with Neil Patrick Harris who is quite obviously a villain from the second he shows up partly because he's played by Neil Patrick Harris. (laughs) Yeah I mean Angelica Jade Bastion's review on Vulture, which is great as all of her writing is, she was like, well, the casting of the new people just like uses their innate talent so well, one of which is like, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but like, he's just got a like smarmy quality, right? But is also (laughs) very, there's also a charisma there, which is part of smarm. And he's like, I don't think she said this, but like, he's got a like hyper verbal thing, right? Which works really well when he has to deliver his big villain monologue, which is also obviously just exposition. It goes down so much easier than Jada Pinkett Smith, which is not a diss to her because the I mean her mom, role like, sucks. she just like, gets it's, it's not terrible. a good role. <laughs> no, but he's really smart casting for this because he can do a big monologue and you enjoy watching it because he just has this he can do the villainous energy thing like really, really well. And I think the point you were making about sort of him and Groff being these like affluent gay men who him he in particular is unbelievably famous in a like mainstream context makes this casting in particular like really interesting to me and yeah just something about the all the aesthetics of that character and the way he's i mean obviously he's got the big blue glasses on which is another tip off if you didn't already get like he's bad but he's basically like he goes on this big thing about how the new matrix is all about like feelings and not facts and people just want to feel good and like control which obviously is commentary on you know our current global situation and because they still have trinity in there he'll kill her if neo does any does anything to screw everything up and that large part of what is powering this new simulation is like the power that neo and trinity create together because their love is just so special which you know sure and it's when they get into the weeds of like how exactly all of this works and how exactly they're going to get Trinity out, which is part of what they, we were talking about earlier with Priyanka Chopra Jonas, that you're, the movie is it just like, what, what is happening with all of this? But this culminates in this big sequence where Neo has to like ask Trinity if she wants to come with him to like leave. And she initially says no because of her children and then kind of remembers and this sets off this big action sequence which they win through the power of love correct but the thing that i wanted to talk about with the action that i had seen something about before i watched it so that i was really paying attention is the way that guns are handled in the film as compared to in the earlier movies and this was the one thing that i really hated about the first matrix and we talked about it on the podcast is that there's just a ton of gun violence in that first movie and there's a scene in like a hotel or bank lobby or something that's just like an orgy yeah. of I mean it just like it just guns. feels extremely dated you know yeah i mean gun violence was also a problem in america yeah. in the 90s <laughs> and this movie also came out like not long before columbine and so there's which obviously like who could have known but it just has a like it leaves a bad taste in my mouth particularly because so much of the other action in the movie is so clever and pleasurable to watch and then there's this like big culminating scene where like they go in and literally just blast the place apart and i was like ugh. yeah whereas in this film like the first big action sequence like with neo is before he's like fully accepted what's going on with the matrix so it's like he's had his first meeting with new morpheus which is delightful like he shows up in the bathroom wearing this great outfit very charming and then there's this fight scene where Neo slash Thomas Anderson is like this completely inactive figure who's kind of in denial about what's happening and is really scared and there's this chaos happening all around him and you do feel this sense of dissociation like you're like in shock and it doesn't feel like you're watching something cool. He's literally like hiding under one of the desks which you know unfortunately common image in American culture and when he he and Morpheus have this scene where like 
they've unplugged him from the Matrix and they're trying to, like, get him to, like, revive. And Morpheus is just beating him up and trying to get him to fight back. But I actually thought there was an almost, like, zen quality to him just, like, not responding. And when he finally does, like, he does fight him a little bit. But what the big thing that winds up happening, which, of course, is when Morpheus is like, you'll never see Trinity again if you die. And, like, that's the thing that he can't bear. Which, like, this, his signature move in this movie is to, like, push his hands out and there's this, like, force field thing that happens. Yeah, he creates a shield. Which, is a defensive mechanism. I mean, it can be used in a kind of offensive way, but it's primarily a defensive mechanism as opposed to an offensive mechanism. And obviously, like, he could pluck bullets out of the air and stuff in the first one. It's not like he's only, you know, shooting people or punching them. But this continues throughout the movie, and in this big fight chase sequence at the end, like, he's on Trinity's bike, and he's, they're, you know, trying to get away from all these people who are chasing them. And there's a scene in a bank lobby or something that looks quite similar to the one in the first movie, where there's all of these machine guns firing at them, and he's, like, saving them off with this defensive move instead of being the ones doing the shooting. And it felt so intentional to me that she had shifted what he's doing Mm -hmm. from that kind of, like, offensive to defensive position in a way that, again, I found kind of, like, profound, because this is one of, again, the, like, iconic, figures in American cinema for the past 25 years and to have him be sort of trying to not get hurt as opposed to like aggressively yeah. <laughs> shooting people. I was like, wow, that's nice. And and it different. also feeds really well back into just the introduction of Neo in the first movie, because in terms of these big like blockbuster romances, obviously in kind of more recent films like romance is not really a priority for current blockbusters like there's a lot of chat about oh like contemporary like strong female characters are so impressive and it's like sometimes that's true but like the relationship building is often very shallow and it feels like there was always this very kind of complex push-pull going on between Trinity and Neo and like part of that is definitely the very obvious BDSM imagery that you have throughout these movies and also the way that he's introduced as a chosen one hero is very classic. But at the same time, she like always feels kind of subversive because it's not one of these stories where it's like, oh, this chosen one guy shows up and he immediately like outshines this girl. She is the person who understands what's going on and guides him into the matrix. And once he's there, like, yeah, he's this guy who has these unique powers, but they are this equal partnership throughout the trilogy and like they die together. And in this film, it just makes it really obvious that they're two halves of a whole. Like the end of this movie has her back in the driver's seat. Like she's the one who's driving the motorbike and he's like doing the shielding. And then the big ultimate action sequence, it's like her who's doing the flying because she's the one who has more confidence now. And she's able to like catch him in midair because she has the same matrix powers as him. And then the film ends with her getting the physical revenge on Neil Patrick Harris's therapist character while Keanu kind of stands back and looks really proud of her. And it's just like, this is delightful. Like, this is an amazing relationship. I love the dynamics you've got going on here. It's great. I love this elder goth couple. (laughs) Well, and also they're like back in the Matrix and are like, we're gonna like fix it. And the last shot is this very cheesy, but entertaining like Wachowski-esque thing of them like literally zooming up into the sky. And in terms of, again, the like commentary about the previous film or like an artist really look going back to their earlier work and thinking about like, okay, what do I want to do differently now? Like that's such a different final message to end on. Like we got to unplug from the machine. (laughs) It's like, we need to plug back in and like start hacking again. Cause like, you're not allowed to fucking hack anything anymore. (laughs) Yeah. And all of the counterculture stuff just feels really great with these like older characters because there's just like so many different ways that you can interpret the concept of what the Matrix is because like back when the first movie came out, there were all these teen boys having debates over like, are we actually living in a simulation? Which I remember you saying like that was your initial oh my God. reaction to the Constant. Matrix. So it was like every conversation with like a teenage boy in like 2001. <laughs> but then there's like all these interpretations with red pill misogynists and obviously like the trans allegories, which are much more interesting. And the fact that it's explicitly about this guy who is a Gen X, like, counterculture guy escaping from his conformist office job. And then with this movie, it's, like, a completely different cultural landscape. It doesn't make sense to tell that story anymore. But it still feels 
like it's the counterculture and it's the correct counterculture for like characters of this age. Like there's definitely ways that you can read this still as sort of like an allegorical queer story, like in loads of different ways, particularly the relationship you have between Neo and Bugs, which is Jessica Henwick's character. Because like there's this conversation which people are already sharing screen caps of all over the internet because it's very direct (laughs) quoting, but like there's this scene where Bugs is like, you know, your story was so important to me. And then the Matrix turned it into something trivial. And then Keanu Neo replies, that's what the Matrix does. It weaponizes every idea and every dream. And you can definitely read that as this sort of, he's this older generation of either the counterculture or like as a member of the queer community who has been through all this shit and is now really demoralized. And the world hasn't really changed that much. And there's just like new shitty authority figures in charge. But what he did still matters because there's people of Bugs' generation to whom this is really important. And it's like, she's the new generation of people who are like powering through. I've also seen some sort of commentary about the idea of like her character design makes her a sort of implicitly like non-binary figure because of the visual stereotype she plays into with short blue hair and stuff, which I think is fully open to interpretation. But I did actually kind of find it surprising that there's no trans characters in the movie because it's like, there's no like trans actors. I don't know. In terms of explicit representation, it's basically completely average as a Hollywood movie, is what I'm saying. But also there's the stuff going on with Jonathan Groff and Neil Patrick Harris, and also like rich subtext, like as always, very complex and slightly problematic with a Wachowski film. Yeah, I was surprised there weren't any actors. I was actually not that surprised that it there wasn't like an obvious sign-pointed trans character because, again, I kind of feel like she doesn't... Like, she didn't want yeah, that to be a big part yeah, of what's But in terms going of, like, on. casting for actors, that's like, kind of what But, like, you could totally cast someone where, like, yeah. not something the audience is going to think about very much. Exactly. Which is not to say that, again, she shouldn't or couldn't have done that, but, like, like we have no idea all the other people who are working on the movie, right? So the actors always get the most attention and... There are like hundreds and hundreds of people who work on the film, so who knows yeah. who else was employed, you know. But again, like kind of a mess, but I loved it. And I mean, in terms of technical stuff, the only other thing I really have to say is again, aesthetically, I think this stuff on IO is like pretty atrocious, but the cinematography of the like Matrix world slash our world stuff I thought was really beautiful, even if the fight choreography didn't always loads of really beautiful natural sunsets which is one of the underrated elements of uh, jupiter ascending yeah though i thought this movie definitely was way better shot than that not that jupiter ascending was like looks bad but it has a kind of like i mean there's a lot of jupiter ascending that's very clearly just filmed on like kind of a blue screen soundstage situation yes which you know what they had to make do godspeed whereas this clearly there was so much attention paid and they obviously had more money it looks better than, with the exception of Dune, obviously, which is like in its own category in terms of big blockbusters. This looks better than anything I've seen in a long time. Again, with the exception of like the stuff that looks bad, which as <laughs> ever when you're talking about these movies, you're like, well, part of it was great. Part of it, meh. But just such a pleasure to get to watch one of these and be like, oh, someone had creative freedom. Like, that's nice. <laughs> um, Yeah, so if you're in America, you can watch this on HBO Max. We would not endorse going to a movie theater right now. I was obviously very sad to not see this in the cinema, but it was literally good on my big TV. So, say la vie. And um, next week, we will be doing what is routinely our most popular episode of the year, which is our top 10 movies. Yes. Of 2021. And Morgan and I do not confer beforehand. So we have both no. privately compiled our top 10 lists, which will probably have considerable overlap. But um, it's always kind of a crapshoot. And there's always an interesting range of movies that you may or may not have heard of, of a wide variety of budgets. Yes. I feel like we usually get between like a third and half overlap. Yeah. Because we both like there, good movies. <laughs> yes. Then it's just who knows. So yeah. I'm, I'm really excited to do that. I always love doing those episodes and people really like listening to them, which is very exciting for us. Yeah. So, And if you liked this episode, tell your friends, share our Matrix episode with your pals. Yes. And if you would like to support us, you can do that at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. If you would like to leave us a review 
on Apple Podcasts. A five-star review particularly helps with visibility, and we would greatly appreciate it. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor, and you can find me on YouTube at Behind the Scenes, where I have an episode all about the costumes of The Matrix. Excellent. And you can find my work at bustle.com and me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. We are on Tumblr at OverinvestedPodcast, and our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.